Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends, the text for today is taken from our gospel reading from Luke chapter 7 with an emphasis on these words. Jesus answered them, that is the messengers of John the the Baptist, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, amen. As dawn broke early on the morning of April 9th, 1945, German theologian and Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was awakened from a restless sleep. As he was awakened, he was pulled from a dark, dank prison cell. He was stripped of his clothing, and he was led along with six other prisoners of the Third Reich to the gallows at Flossenburg concentration camp. His crime? For the better part of a decade, Bonhoeffer, along with fellow members of the Confessing Church of Deutschland, had worked tirelessly to preach the truth of Scripture to a nation that was being torn apart by the Nazi party. For his part, Dietrich was known to use his pulpit to highlight the crimes against humanity being perpetuated by Adolf Hitler and his followers. He also spearheaded and presided over an underground seminary after participation in the confessing church was outlawed. And then finally... When it became apparent that civil discourse had failed, he reluctantly participated in an attempt to assassinate the German dictator. Now, traditional accounts of Bonhoeffer's execution consist of him muttering a short prayer and then climbing the steps to his noose and then being quickly and cleanly hanged. A heroic death for a gallant gentleman and a faithful pastor. But modern historians, researchers, and journalists who have interviewed prison guards of Hitler's concentration camps have come to debate this account, however. They dismiss it as a fictional and whitewashed rendition of what was, in reality, a brutal and torturous affair for those who were executed by the Nazi party. Contemporary accounts reveal that prisoners who were sentenced to death in a concentration camp were frequently starved and beaten before their executions. Not only that, but during the hanging, these men were not given a swift plummet to the end of a taut rope in order to give them a quick and merciful end, but instead were often strung up and pulled by their neck for minutes at a time until they were rendered unconscious due to a lack of oxygen. At that point, a prison doctor would bring them down and resuscitate them, and then they would be hanged again and again in order to prolong their agony before death. In actuality, it's probable that Bonhoeffer, a known dissident who participated in a coup, would have died in this or similar fashion. So why do I tell you this? Why do I share such gruesome and horrid details which were visited on such a faithful and earnest disciple of Christ? Certainly the good pastor deserved better. 
men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, aren't supposed to die in places like this, in concentration camps, in gas chambers, run by loathsome tyrants. Yet Bonhoeffer himself was under no such delusions. Prior to his arrest and execution, he had written and published what is, arguably, his most famous writing, entitled simply Nachfolge in the German or in the English The Cost of Discipleship, in over 300 pages, the pastor details his ruminations on the price of following Christ in a world which has rejected him. He was well aware that living like Christ in a fallen world carries with it all kinds of perils. And, as was evidenced by his last days, he knew that the temporal reward for such faithful discipleship may very well be a grim death. And yet, to those of us here today, those who have read this story and one like it throughout the pages of the Holy Scriptures ought not be surprised. For 1900 years, before Dietrich Bonhoeffer was sent to the gallows at Flossenburg, John Bar Zechariah, a prophet called by his disciples the baptizer, sat in his own dank, dark cell in the fortress of Machairus, a private prison nestled under the Herod family estate on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. Like Bonhoeffer, John was imprisoned for speaking the truth to those in power. A far cry now from the zealous preacher who we met in last week's gospel reading, John's calls for repentance had now made their way to none other than Tetrarch Herod Antipas for his adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife. And of course, he responded about as well as you might expect someone belonging to the Herod family to respond. He swiftly locked John up in prison. No doubt, as John was arrested, he likely entered his prison cell, thinking that this was but a mere bump in the road for his ministry, and that having now seen the Christ come, having baptized him personally, and having seen his work begin, soon he would be liberated from his jail cell and resume the task of preparing people to receive their now coming Messiah. How John must have longed to rid himself of this political farce and scandal. How his heart must have yearned to get back to the much more important task which God had given him, which he had been called to from the time of the prophets. Yes, the word of the prophets would be validated and Jesus would come soon. Winnowing fork in hand, he would clear the threshing floor. He would bring tyrants like King Herod to accountability for their sinful disregard of God's law. But, as the days of John's imprisonment turned into weeks, as those weeks perhaps became months, and as John preached not to the lost sheep of Israel, but only to the curious ear of the loathsome Herod, 
something unexpected started to happen to John. A nagging voice of doubt started to creep into his thoughts. If Jesus is the Christ, as I have been teaching, well then where is he? Why am I wasting away in a prison cell while Herod remains on his lofty perch seemingly free from all consequence? Did I get this whole thing wrong? Is this how the Lord rewards those who serve him? Men like John the Baptist, now, they're, they're not supposed to die in places like this, not in prison cells owned and run by corrupt politicians. Well, not long after, some of John's disciples found a way to make contact with him while in prison, and they asked him what he needed done on the outside. Of course, John's first request was to have them approach Jesus and ask him what I read and interpret as a very pointed and perhaps even bitter question. To Jesus, John asks, Are you the one who is to come? Well, cousin, is it you? And if it is you, then by all means, what's going on? Why am I wasted in this cell preaching repentance to a fool like Herod? Where is your blasted axe that was supposed to be laid to the root of the trees? Or, or, shall we look for another? Should I hold my breath for the Christ who comes to clean house? Should I wait for the one who liberates the captives and puts heathens and tyrants in their place? Should I still be looking out for the Christ who rewards the faithful? And Jesus, hearing the distress of his cousin's entreaty, responds for neither the first nor the last time in a rather unexpected way. He does not make the call for justice for John. Nor does he rally a group of strong men to storm the prison and bust him out. In fact, Jesus doesn't even promise to try to go and sort the whole thing out. Because you see, the fruit of John's ministry would not be measured in any metric of worldly justice or success. A prophet's reward is not in fame or riches or glory. Jesus says, Go and tell John, What you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The time of the prophets is at an end. The time of the Christ is now. And so, blessed are you, John. Blessed are you, Dietrich. Blessed are all of you who suffer and yet are not scandalized to turn away from me when you are rejected and imprisoned for receiving me. And why? 
because as Jesus so clearly showed those messengers, the signs attest that this is indeed the Christ who comes. But he does not come in might and conquest. He comes in service and charity. He comes healing the sick. He comes raising the dead. He comes proclaiming forgiveness to the poor in spirit. This is the prophet's reward. Not that he should be spared suffering, but that he should suffer in the name of him who brings the grace and mercy of Almighty God to light in the seeing and hearing of poor, miserable sinners like you and me. The one who receives Jesus Christ rejoices in their suffering, rejoices in their tribulation, confident that their ultimate deliverance has nothing to do with this body and life. Yes, sufferings will come. Jesus is clear on that. If such sufferings come as can make a man like John the Baptist doubt, then what does that say for you and me? What hope could we possibly have? And yet, despite this doubt, did you notice how Jesus responded to John's question? He didn't just send his messengers back with news of the Christ to the crowds who were demoralized by seeing their prophet thrown in prison. Jesus lifted him up. He said, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? What were you expecting? A reed shaken by the wind? A yes man who makes you feel good about yourselves? No, then what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see someone dressed in fine clothing? Someone like Herod? Someone who's only in it for themselves? Well, no. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, those who live in luxury, they dwell in king's courts. They aren't out in the wilderness. They're not getting their hands dirty. They're not preparing the way of the Lord. They're strewing their own way. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. The one whom Isaiah of old had prophesied. Behold, I send my messenger before you. Before your face. Who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None. He is the very best, the brightest, the most humble. The one with an ear for the word of the Lord. The one with a voice to proclaim boldly and fearlessly the coming of the Messiah. And yet I tell you, O sinner, that he who is the last, the very least in the kingdom of God is still greater than even John the Baptist. You who are baptized, you who believe and receive Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, greater is your honor than even the most noble of the prophets of old. For that's what he was. John was a prophet, and he received a prophet's reward. He saw with his eyes that he of whom he prophesied would come and redeem this lost and sinful race. Though John was rejected by man, the Christ still remains his reward. For that same Jesus Christ will lift John up again in the resurrection of the flesh on the last day.
John did not suffer alone, nor did he suffer in vain. For his Christ also suffered with him and for him. Though John died, he died in the hope of this resurrection, for his Christ carried his sufferings and death with him in his own death upon Calvary's cross. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, know for certain by John's example this Advent season that preparing the way for Jesus is no easy thing. Like John and like Bonhoeffer and like all faithful witnesses, you will at some point undoubtedly be given to suffer for this Christian faith. And yet as you do, the Holy Scriptures call you again to rejoice in those sufferings. Yes, to rejoice. Now perhaps some of you this morning took note of the pink candle which adorns our Advent wreath this Sunday. This denotes it as a special day in the season called Gaudete, a day of rejoicing. And if you did know this, then perhaps your mind strayed for a moment during Pastor Sway's reading of the Holy Gospel and you thought, boy, what in the world is there to rejoice over for me? To this, the redeemed in Christ give their answer as that dear Saint Bonhoeffer gave in his final work before his execution, a work entitled simply Ethics. And here he writes, So heaven is at last torn open above us humans, and the joyful message of God's salvation in Christ Jesus rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe, and in believing, I receive Christ. Therefore, I have everything, for I live before God. And so, this day, this Gaudete, rejoice indeed, dear Christians, as you prepare the way for the Christ. Rejoice as you suffer. Rejoice, for you have received him who is the reward for all who believe and trust in his grace. He alone comes among us, proclaiming good news to the poor. He alone gives sight to the blind and makes the lame to walk. He alone cleanses the lepers, opens the ears of the deaf, and at the very last, gives life to the dead by his own death and resurrection. Rejoice. Rejoice in this most blessed proclamation, joining your voices to the throng of martyrs and prophets who came before you. For their reward is your reward, even Jesus Christ. Amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in this same Christ Jesus, unto life everlasting. Amen.